Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. In November, the president of the Democratic Republic of Congo went on national television and called people to join the army. And so we were curious and we went to investigate. And we headed straight to a recruitment center. It was just a street, an ad hoc recruitment center by the road. We found hundreds of young men holding wooden batons, wooden guns, AK-47 sort of, marching, singing. And sort of charging themselves for the army. And a lot of the songs that we had had a lot of anti-Rwanda, anti-Kagame rhetoric. It's like we're bringing the war to you. We're not taking this lying down. And very quickly, we were able to just sense a very different atmosphere. This is an angry Congo. has resumed in the Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo between government troops and M23 fighters. The government has accused M23 of the campaign of murder, rape, kidnapping and looting. These plastic sheets on the edge of a village in Democratic Republic of Congo are once again providing shelter for families. I'm Ariel Zumros. And I'm Evelyn Kahungu, Nairobi's Deputy Bureau Chief for Vice News. And this is Vice News Reports. So Evelyn, you're based in Nairobi, and you just came back from a reporting trip to the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Why did you go? Yeah, I've been reporting on the DRC for about a decade now. In the last sort of one year, we've seen quite an unusual buildup of tensions between government forces and armed militias, and specifically one called the M23, which is made up of army mutineers who left the government army about a decade ago. So what can you tell me about this rebel group that the government is asking people to fight? All right, so the group is called the M23. It started about 10 years ago when about 300 army mutineers broke off from the National Army and and formed this group. The M23 was founded by ethnic Tutsi former rebels who were incorporated into the Congolese army under a 2009 peace deal. And that's where their name comes from, the March 23rd peace agreement or the peace accord. The government was trying to reintegrate some of these mutineers back into the army, but the the soldiers kept complaining of the conditions they were living in, the pay was still not good, and saying the whole of Eastern Congo where the Tutsi population lived was very marginalized. So that whole March 23rd peace deal broke down. 
They mutinied in April last year, claiming that the pact had never been fully implemented. A small group of army mutineers has turned into a powerful rebel force. This is the latest territory captured by M23. This group, they seem to need to make a military point that they're able to disarm Congolese army, they're able to take territory so that they are taken seriously and that they did very, very well in 2012. So in 2012, once M23 took up arms and and was fully formed, what happened next? F-23 fighters drove into Goma like war heroes and not a rebel army. In 2012, they did march on successfully and captured the regional city of Goma for about a couple of days. And this region is really important to the financial well-being of the country, the whole country. There's a lot of gold, coltan mines, cobalt. Whoever controls them wields a lot of power. Today, the rebels marched through the city to little resistance from either Congolese soldiers or UN peacekeepers. I was there the morning they entered the city of Goma, and I experienced a lot of chaos on that day. The government soldiers abandoning their posts and running off with their families was chaotic, but it was also like the most successful we'd seen any rebellion. The fact that they were able to capture a city with the biggest UN peacekeeping force in the world stationed there, it was unprecedented. But also that showed just how weak the nation state of the Democratic Republic Congo is. And that's why the UN Security Council moved very quickly, formed an intervention brigade that was given special mandates to actually engage the, the soldiers. UN peacekeepers are taking a more combative role as fighting escalates in the Democratic Republic of Congo. I mean, M23 had an upper hand. They had newly captured weapons, but they lacked one critical element of war, area support. And so the UN Intervention Brigade were able to take the fight to the skies. An elite intervention brigade, given a robust mandate to take on armed groups, has been drawn into the fight. And so what we saw very quickly was the world taking note of what was going on in the east of Congo and having a solution that seemed to work. First tonight, M23 is waving the white flag of surrender. The rebel group that has plagued eastern Congo for more than a year and a half says it's laying down its arms and is ready to negotiate. The M23 were driven out of town, defeated badly. And so they ran off and surrendered into both Uganda and Rwanda, where they'd been exiled. Okay, so back in March 2013... It's both the UN and the DRC's army that managed to push M23 out of the country. Correct. So at what point do we start seeing members of M23 come back to the DRC? According to the M23, their rebellion and their demands have never quite gone away. But in 2017, um, a group of investigators was able to document active fighting by members of the M23 and they were being used by the current president to squash rebellions in the capital. But it was never at that point of they're coming back. It was always guns for hire. But it's not until 2022 that we actually saw a full-blown war start. So that brings us to 2022, right? What happened last year? In 2022, we saw M23 capture the border post between Uganda and DRC. M23 rebels have reportedly captured the eastern town of Bunagana on the Ugandan border. 
And so we saw them capture a lot of the land that borders Uganda in the east and Rwanda as they marched onto the capital, uh, Goma. Okay, so as of beginning of January, they are close to Goma again, a city that they had previously captured more than 10 years ago now. Correct. And what we've seen is as they capture these strategic places that they've captured before, there's been a lot of civilian displacement. And so there's a huge humanitarian crisis happening in in the capital Goma now. People are sleeping out in the cold. We've got more population displaced into both Rwanda and Uganda. It's, it's just one big mess. So the reasons that M23 are fighting now, are they still the same ones that that they had for fighting a decade ago? Yeah. I mean, their demands have not changed much. They are asking for the Tutsi population within the east of Congo not to be marginalized. They're asking the government to look back through all the peace deals that they've negotiated and actually honor them. And one of the big demands from those peace deals is the reintegration of their fighters into the national army, better pay, better ranks. That hasn't changed. Um... And finally, one that was a bit unique this time round is that if all this fails, then the Tutsi population or the population in the east of Congo must be allowed to self-govern. Mm. Okay, that's a pretty big demand. What was the government's response? Initially, the president just ignored this group. And then he took a bold step and designated this group as a terror group. And so that means he cannot negotiate with them. But M23, as they've taken territory, has gone on killing people. And there has been a question a lot of people ask. As you make all these demands, who then pays the price? Who then gets to account for all this? The government probably can't just give in to these demands, right? Since M23 is responsible for the death of civilians over the last decade. But I'm wondering, how has M23 supported itself for this long? So a lot of regional uh, experts looking into this conflict um, feel like there is somebody paying for it, and for a reason. I mean, one of the things that the investigators who've been looking into this new rebellion has said M23 is able to take so much territory so quickly is they seem to have sophisticated weapons, actually better than the National Army's weapons. So both Rwanda and Uganda have been accused of offering some sort of help. M23 is fighting for the Tutsi population inside the DRC to, you know, to be better treated. They've got a historical link to the Tutsi community in both Uganda and Rwanda, but mainly Rwanda. President Kagame is from the Tutsi community, and so the Tutsi community's welfare would be important to him. The Rwandan government has denied any involvement. DRC has always accused Rwanda of wanting a little bit of mineral-rich land in the east. And, you know, they've pointed at Rwanda's exportation of minerals that are not mined in their land as evidence. The Congolese army has announced the mobilization of youth to fight M23 rebels who are gaining ground in the eastern DRC of the Congo. And now the president of the DRC is calling for people to take up arms against M23 in whatever way they can. Correct. And the president 
went on national TV and called young people in the Congo to take up arms to help the government fight these rebels and form vigilante groups and take the war to M23, which is a really dangerous remark for a head of state to call people to arms. And that is the landscape in which you land in the DRC to go report on this story. Yeah. So my colleague and I, Julius Diaz, who is our correspondent in the region, headed to the DRC in November. Welcome to Goma, ladies and gentlemen, landed at Goma International Airport. Please remain seated with your seatbelt securely fastened. And as we came to land, the whole story sort of unfolded. I saw hundreds of foreign troops, Congolese troops within the airport. It was like a cocktail of the Kenyan regional forces, the DRC army, UN troops, all sharing this little airport as they rearmed and brought in supplies. But also very quickly, you were able to see the displaced people's camps. Thousands displaced sleeping on lava fields, you saw one very jarry image, the absence of UN peacekeeping force within the town. I mean, my previous visits to the DRC, the UN troops patrol the streets every two seconds. I did not see a UN patrol my entire 10 days there. Wow. Okay. So a very different country than the one that you're accustomed to. Correct. We saw lots of movement online, young people picking arms, joining vigilante groups, and so we were curious and we went to investigate and we headed straight to a recruitment center. We're seeing handfuls of um, young men who've come to the army um, sort of roadside recruitment center. And this recruitment center, this is an army recruitment center, right? They're, they're trying to get civilians to sign up. Yes, the recruiters told us you had to have a couple of basics. One, you must be over 18. You must have gone up to at least the fourth grade in high school. You must be able to read and write. And above all, you must be able to prove where you come from. And that was a curious one. So I asked the recruiter why. And he says, look, our enemy is recruiting and bringing spies to us. We don't want to recruit them into the army just to feed them back. And to me, that's just a really basic example of ethnic profiling going on. Mm, I see. Right. So they're trying to prevent Tutsis from joining because they are seen to be aligned with M23. Yeah, let's just say if you were Tutsi, you could speak English and French. You were not getting into the army. You're just not trusted, not in this society. Did you ask anyone who was at the recruitment center why they wanted to sign up to be in the army? Yeah, we, I mean, uh, we spoke to quite a few people, but the one that struck me was Esperance. That's after the break. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Okay, so Evelyn, before the break, you were telling me about Espérance, the woman who you met who signed up for the army to fight against M23. Can you tell me more about her? Yeah, I was very curious because in Africa, a lot of times war is for, for men. But then we see this little girl and she was doing all her you know, marching orders and turns all wrong. But when we approached her, we realized just how passionate she was about what she was doing. So Esperance speaks French and Swahili, and so just because I don't speak French, our colleagues Julia did a lot of the talking. Can you tell me why you left your hometown to come here? The M23 fighters were sort of coming towards them and were intending to take their territory. And so she left home. She left her two children and her mom and walked to the capital. She told us of walking for days from her home, Kale, which is about 100 kilometers away from the capital, Goma. It was a very personal war for her. Her father and her husband both died in 2012 during the previous M23 rebellion. And I think she'd been waiting for it. She'd been waiting for a time where she could join to honor them, but also just to fight for their spirit. Esperance told us, and I will, you know, just to paraphrase her, They've killed our sons, our fathers, and our children. We will not allow them to rule our country. We will fight them. I mean, this is a spirit everybody that we spoke to came up with. We are taking the fight to them. We are not taking this lying down. She told us, if, if my kids were old enough, they will be signing up to join the army too. But that's how determined she was. I mean, for somebody who's been to the DRC countless times, it's it struck quite the nerve. It's people who've known a cycle of violence from when they're born. I mean, the wars in the Congo have been going on for over 30 years. So a lot of this population that we are seeing in the recruitment camps would have not known anything else. They want this cycle of 
war and violence to stop. And if that means taking arms to stop it, they all seem determined to do that too. This conflict has displaced thousands of people in the last few months. Did you talk to any of the people who've been displaced? Yes, we did. We went to a displaced people's camp. I will call it IDP. That's Internally Displaced Persons Camp. I mean, it was the saddest state I've seen the Congolese population in a very, very long time. All the displaced are at the base of Mount Nyiragongo, which is an active volcano. So the fields they've been given by the roadside are just active lava fields, stone, hard, black, volcanic rock. And this is where these people have set up their tents. We actually attempted to go to these camps a couple of times. The first time we got mobbed by a very upset crowd. Okay, so where are we at the moment and what just happened to us when we were out trying to report? Uh, we just came back to a hotel. Um, we'd been to a displaced people's camp trying to report on what's going there. But quickly things turned south. Um, the, the displaced people are very hostile to press and to my colleagues who are all obviously very foreign and white. Um, you know, they pointed at my colleagues, Julia and Sergeant, calling them, you know, white Tutsis. You're the ones who made us get displaced. A five-year-old girl who came up to Julia, my colleague, and says, you've got the long, sharp nose, you're a Tutsi. I mean, the mob became uncontrollable. Even for me, as an East African who speaks the local language, Swahili, I try to calm them down, but they just won't hear it. So the difficulty that you experienced in talking to people, where do you think those that hostility and those sentiments come from? So a lot of people here view foreign white people as part of the humanitarian circles. And people here are tired of that because they think the UN is part of this conspiracy to keep the people of the Eastern Congo in a state of war. They've given them a chance for over 20 years. And all they've seen is an escalation. By the time the UN was coming into Congo, they had less than 10 rebel groups. Right now, they have over 100. The UN, with its $1 billion budget, has not been able to stop all this violence and displacement and killing of civilians. Mm. And so that's where the hatred for foreign interventions, the UN, is coming from. People are just tired and they just feel like all these organizations have let them down. They've been abandoned. And so they're lashing out. And we've seen this hatred towards the UN escalate. There was a lot of um, anti-UN protests and very quickly... This protest done deadly. In the Democratic Republic of Congo, dozens of people have been killed after protests against the presence of a UN peacekeeping mission turned deadly. The victims include peacekeepers and an 11-year-old child. The protesters tried to gain entry into UN bases. The UN peacekeepers shot and killed some of them. Some UN peacekeepers were shot and killed. And... This has sort of resulted in the UN not being able to do much of the work that they're supposed to be doing. We saw less of them patrolling the streets. That sounds really complicated and very violent. Did you get a chance to speak to anyone who is currently a member of M23? So we went back to Nairobi and in a few days of landing, we got a text, come now. Like they gave us 24 hours to go back. Wow. 
And they said, we have a big press conference. We would want the international media to be there. This is your chance. Hey, Ariel. It's Tuesday the 13th. We are on our way to Kigali, Rwanda. We got a call earlier today asking for us to quickly come to Rwanda and then on to DRC um, at a border crossing called Bunagana, where the M23 rebels will give us an audience. But what's most unique about this, and it's not lost on us, is the fact that that was allowed to happen. For journalists to cross these two countries, which are highly monitored, we knew we had, there was extra permission from somewhere else. Somebody higher up in these administrations knew that we were coming. Des espaces contrôlés, probablement par le gouvernement, et de partout ailleurs. We are also delighted to welcome all of you. Evelyn, tell me about this press conference. Who was there? What was it like? Well, it was the most surreal press conference. We are walked now into Bunagana, which is the border town that M23 first took when they started this rebellion, and taken to this pub. It's called the Bunagana pub. The scene was surreal, really. It looked like a discotheque, you know, with mood lighting. And then they asked, like, all the press to put in their cameras in, like, one podium. They had the M23 spokesperson, you know, grab a random guy who could speak English and do the French-English translation. So people are fleeing the government-controlled zone and they come to safe, safe haven in M23 zone. And then the president of the group arrived and there was like a, a military parade for him where he inspects the, the M23 fighters before he gets into this pub and discotheque to address the world media. It was just like a scene out of a really bad movie. <laughs> so it was a spectacle, like total spectacle. It was a four-hour press conference of non-stop spectacle. <laughs> At some point, we just couldn't do any more because we really needed to speak to the president. So after four hours, they took us in the president's vehicle and took us to his home. His house is just a basic house. He told us he didn't have proper power. His house is at, at the foot of this really uh, beautiful hill, which also serves like as a, as a defense position for M23 fighters, so we could see them up in their little huts, just walking around and spying on us. Okay, great. So we'll start just um, some basic questions about the movement, if that's okay. The interview is in French. What was of interest to us is who is responsible for all this? Of course, they denied that there was any massacre in the places that they are being accused of. They denied targeting civilian population as they amassed territories. They denied that the people in their territories are, are being oppressed. Today at your press conference, you also denied any responsibility for these massacres that the UN said killed at least 170 people. Are you at any point going to take some responsibility for the impact of the war here. No, no, no. I je prefer parler des faits. Voyez, l'ONU joue avec sa crédibilité, vous savez. 
ce n'est pas parce qu'il s'appelle Monisco au Congo que tout ce qu'il dit est vrai. C'est ça le problème, en fait. But I'm asking you a question and you're telling me it's the UN that's wrong. Non, non, non. Laissez-moi vous expliquer les choses. Mm -hmm. I mean, we pinned him down in his conversation with my colleague and reporter Julia Steers. She did ask him, we've seen the reports the UN is accusing you of being funded and fighting a proxy war for both Rwanda and Uganda. What did he have to say for that? Do you categorically deny, like the other leaders of M23, that you have any backing, financial or logistical, from Rwanda or Uganda? He denied all this. We are not funded by anybody. This is a movement of people who want to see justice for the people of Eastern Congo. We want to see justice for the Tutsi population who've been targeted forever. He said they've always, ever, always wanted the March 23rd a peace accord is respected. And we said, if you were to get everything you're demanding in this peace deal, would we see the guns silenced in Eastern Congo forever? And he, he smiled and said yes. So you left the DRC in January and, and you went home to Nairobi. What has happened in the DRC since then? Since we came back, a lot has happened in terms of negotiations. We've seen M23 withdraw from two strategic points. Um, they've left a vantage point that brought them 25 kilometers to Goma town. They've scaled back. They've seated their control of a major military base, the biggest actually in that region that they were able to overrun. But the Congolese government insists that they are calling for unconditional withdrawal from all Congolese territory by the group. What is your assessment of how things are going right now? Personally, I think the M23 doesn't have the upper hand this time round. Their resurgence has pissed off a lot of people in the East. And when you've got a civilian population begging for your blood, I think that's a war you can't win. When you know children are willing to take arms to fight you, they know they can get killed, but they've got nothing to lose. They've seen these cycles of violence for so many years that enough is enough. I also think with the UN investigators able to give actual evidence of help coming from foreign governments for the M23 and being able to, you know, expose some of this, I think it's helped the cause for the Congolese government. There's more regional forces getting engaged in this fight, then there'll be a better paper trail and better weapon trail and better evidence trail that will point at the actual funders of this war. And so I think part of what we're seeing now is them realizing, I think we've lost this one this time around and withdrawing. What about the people who have been recruited into the army? I mean, did you ever talk again to Espérance, for instance? Yes, we did. <laughs> We went back to see Esperanza after a couple of days. She was huddled with other women who'd actually passed the recruitment tests and were also waiting to be taken away for training. They were dancing to gospel music. So we found a lot of hungry young men telling us we've been here waiting for days and we're still not gone. And so you could see the euphoric energy we fast saw on day one, sort of slowly dying. 
the realization of just how big this task is going to be. A couple of days after we'd met her the second time, she was flown to her training. And hopefully she's beginning to get a bit re-energized from actually succeeding to join the army. Evelyn, thank you so, so much for your reporting, for the time that you spent in the DRC, actually you know, talking to people on the ground and, and then coming back here and telling us this story. Thank you so much. Oh, you're most welcome. It was an honor. The governments of Uganda and Rwanda have denied any accusations of being involved with M23. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Special thanks to our translator, Aquilina Mawatza, with Bayville Languages, Vice News Nairobi Bureau Chief Julia Steers, and our production crew, Adolf Bazengi and Serjan Stoilkovic. This story was produced by Stephanie Brown and edited by Stephanie Kariuki. Vice News Reports is produced by Sam Egan, Sophie Kazis, Adriana Rodriguez, and Adriana Tapia. Our senior producers are Jesse Alejandro Cottrell, Janice Yamoka, and Julia Nutter. Our supervising producer is Ashley Cleek. Our associate producer is Steph Brown. Sound design and music composition by Steve Bone, Pran Bandy, and Kyle Murdoch. Our executive producers are Adiza Egan and Stephanie Kariuki. For Vice Audio, Annie Aviles is our executive editor, and Janet Lee is our senior production manager. Fact-checking by Nicole Pasolka. Our theme music is by Steve Bone. Our VP of Audio is Charles Roggio. I'm Ariel Zermross. If you like the show and if you have the time this week, it'd be so great if you could rate and review the podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. It really does help people find the show. Vice News Reports drops every Thursday, so be sure to check back in next week.